Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello, welcome, and thank you for tuning in today. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan. Joining me again today is Tim Cockrell. Tim and I will be discussing his recent sermon from Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. And Tim, we're here talking about anger, and I'll tell you, what a week I've had. (laughs) I'm ticked off at my family. I'm ticked off at my adult Bible fellowship. And by the way, I'm just ticked off at you, Cockrell. You really, I tell you what, I don't like what you did. Okay, let's back up. This is going to be a now, good one. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. Actually, I love you, and I love my family, and everything's going great. I don't have any problems, but I'm sure somebody out there can <laughs> resonate with where I was just going. Uh, there are people in their lives who are driving them crazy. Maybe they're driving others crazy, but we're talking about anger, and I want to bring you back to a thought that you used to open your sermon four weeks ago. Yeah, I take notes, mm-hmm. and, and I just came across this again. You said that when a heart is transformed by Christ, it will change everything, Mm -hmm. a different king, a different approach. You also shared that it's not so much about what we are to do. It's about what we are to be and the, what we are to be will, will give rise to what we're to do. Talk about that a little bit more. Let's revisit that. Right. I think that is, it's so foundational as we come to the sermon on the Mount, because my fear is that especially when we get to this section of the contrast, you've heard it said, but I say to you, that we view almost Jesus's ethical instructions here as if they're the hammer that's designed to to pound us into conformity, to just beat us down and to remind us of all the different ways that we fall short. But I think we have to recognize that Jesus is talking to disciples here. These are those that have already followed Christ. They've already put their faith in him, and therefore they're already a part of the kingdom, if you will. And so what he's trying to tell them is how to live from their identity not for their identity. He's describing, to use that butterfly analogy that we used early on, now that you already are a new creation, here's what that should look like in your relationships, in your character, in your thought life, in your prayer life, all these different things. And if instead we get this backwards and we look at Jesus simply as saying, hey, if you're going to be in the kingdom, you better keep all these rules, then we fall into the pattern of the Pharisees. That then we, we focus on the external, kind of the minimum standard of the law, and I think we really miss the whole heart of the matter, and that is love for God and a longing to please him. And if we want to look at the, the disciples, and these are disciples who are mm-hmm. following him, uh, we're reading here in the New Testament, it's early in Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, but they're still living according to the dynamic of the Old Testament. Can we flesh that out a little bit? Right. So when Jesus comes, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And all along in the Old Testament, there was this expectation of someday there's going to be a new covenant in which the law is no longer written on tablets of stone, but it's written on, on human hearts. That there is a, a, a spirit that is given, Ezekiel 36 would tell us, that's going to enable us to live out these realities. And so the disciples, to a degree us as well, but to the disciples especially, are caught in this already and not yet. So Jesus is inaugurating the kingdom, but he hasn't yet provided all of the new covenant blessings associated with it. And so what he's trying to provide them with is deeper insight into what the Old Testament law really said. It wasn't just about doing the right things, but for the right reasons. That then leads to this this hunger and this anticipation 
of all that Christ will provide, not just through a sacrificial death and atonement, but also through his resurrection life and empowerment as we live out that new reality. It reminds me a number of years ago uh, in my business, I learned that, you know what, I need to ask a lot of questions, but I need to lead my clients in the first meeting through what is going to happen in the process Mm -hmm. that they are initiating with me. And I find that when I go through that, I spend an hour or so with them beforehand, tell them what's coming. Then when it hits the road, they say, oh, that's what he was talking about. Isn't that really basically what Jesus is saying here? Things are coming and the Holy Spirit, and of course he doesn't say this, the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. But when they see the Holy Spirit, they're going to be, oh, wow, that's, these are some of the things he was talking about. Is that fair? I think so. And I think even the, the struggles and failures that we see the disciples experience are going to be a picture of that. I also think, and we, we get into some complexity of, um, of spiritual dynamics, remember that Jesus sent out the disciples two by two to go do works of the Spirit. You know, that they are healing people and they're doing things. And so there's maybe a sense in which we have an Old Testament on-dwelling of the Holy Spirit that is not yet the new covenant sense of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So we could maybe split hairs there, but I do think that as we see the disciples struggle and fail, I mean, even you just think about the disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, that when the, the soldier, soldiers show up and they all scatter, Compare that then to the disciples on the day of Pentecost as they're proclaiming the gospel and baptizing people. There's a transformation that happens when the Spirit comes that's just undeniable. Well, and in Acts it says, Luke writes, you know, they were speaking as one who had authority. Well, who are these people? Yep. In studying this passage the past couple of weeks, it, it becomes even more evident, uh, and you've shared this from the platform, that Matthew is focusing really on two matters as he shares Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. You know, he's obviously teaching about some very real-life matters. We're talking about anger here in a, in a few moments, lust, and, and other sins and uh, problems that we deal with. But he also seems to be sharing the futility of our trying to seek God's approval through the keeping of the law. It seems like he's saying... Guys, this just isn't possible to keep the law. You need help. Right. And I think we see that most clearly in chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you're not going to enter into the kingdom. And if there was anybody whose spiritual resume would qualify you to get in based on rule keeping, it would have been the Pharisees. What Jesus is doing is revealing the depth of the law, the heart of the law. Even if you're able to kind of meet the minimum standard, I didn't murder anybody, I'm not committing adultery, it doesn't mean you've met the requirement of the law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when we use the law wrongly for self-justification rather than for personal conviction, it's going to lead us to focus on the external to look to that minimum external outward standard, the outer limit, if you will, from that image or illustration that we used on Sunday. And so we're using the law for the wrong purpose. Maybe you've had this where you try to use a tool for something it was never meant to be used for. It's usually a hammer for me. Exactly. (laughs) You're more likely to break the tool than you are to actually accomplish what you're hoping to do. I think in the same way, so many times we try to use the law for something it was never meant to do, and that is to kind of pound our own lives or someone else's life into conformity rather to convict us of our desperate need for grace. And it's certainly when you try to use the wrong tool, it certainly makes it very evident what you really need to do. Get the yep. right tool, not keep using the wrong one. 
Well, in the Adult Bible Fellowship that I lead, we brainstormed the other day to come up with with facets of sin that often lead to anger. Uh, we talked about envy, we talked about greed, lust, selfishness, and, and of course, each of these mindsets have their root in a focus on self uh, and a lack of love for God and others. And so, the answer to the problem really is just as easy as taking the focus off the self. And the answer to the problem really is just as difficult as taking the focus off the self. It's a conundrum. It is. And I think you've captured the element here well, and that is that all of the Christian life is putting off certain patterns and putting on certain patterns. And I think sometimes when we think about the ethical implications of Jesus's instructions, we focus the predominant majority of our attention on the putting off. We need to stop being greedy. We need to stop being lustful. We need to stop being angry. And there's elements in which that's true. But if we just put off anger, but don't put on love, if we just put off lust, but don't put on selfless regard for the purity of a brother or sister in Christ, then we've actually just left a vacuum that something else will fill. And so maybe I say, okay, I need to stop being greedy. And so I, I stop being greedy, but then I let those same kind of selfish desires make me pursue lust or something similar. There, there's a vacuum that's there. And I think the one thing that's hard as we talked about anger is that anger at its core is an unmet expectation or an unfulfilled desire. But many times the desires that go unfulfilled are good desires. I want to be loved. I want my kids to respect me. I want to be appreciated by the people around me. But what happens in the subtlety of our own hearts is that desire becomes a demand. It becomes an idol of our heart that we say, I have to have this. I can't live without it so much so that I'm willing to sin in order to get it, or I'm willing to sin if I don't get it. And so I would suggest then that the real work of the Christian life is to not just ask, what am I wanting, but why do I want it so deeply? And is it possible that it has actually become an idol of our heart? Because to have a desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. But to let it become a heart idol makes a good thing into a God thing. Well, and you talked about this in the context of the biblical admonition to be angry and sin not. Mm -hmm. The whole idea there is a righteous anger, but so often what we call righteous anger... Yeah, it's colored <laughs> pretty heavily by our own selfishness and what we want. That's true in my own life. I certainly can't speak for everyone else, but I think what's especially dangerous about that idea of righteous anger is we then use the Bible to justify our anger. It's a club. You know, that, that we say, hey, I'm, I'm entitled to feel this way. Jesus would feel this way too. And we use our kind of religious position to conceal what honestly is just ugly vindictiveness or sinful anger. Was that a timely statement? I mean, we do have a uh, general election coming up here in less than uh, two months. So now, and, and it is, we need to be careful uh, what we are trumpeting and what we are, how we are trumpeting it and uh, really make sure the love of God is showing through. Well, it's interesting to me that of the six sins that Jesus highlights here in chapter five, he leads off with anger. You don't want to read too much into order of presentation, but I don't think you want to totally abandon the, the idea or discussing the issue. Do you see a purpose in, in Jesus is leading off with this and Matthew recording him as leading off on this and starting the discussion with anger instead of lust or divorce and remarriage or whatever it might be coming following? 
I think there's a couple of possibilities. One, I think we see almost like bookends here that Jesus starts off with with being angry and kind of pushing people aside, people that are made in God's image. And then he closes chapter five with calling us to love our enemies, even as ourselves. That there's this interpersonal dynamic of a kingdom citizen that says, if I love God the way that I'm supposed to, it will spill out into my relationships in what I would call interpersonal righteousness. The other thing that I would say is, and this is going to be anecdotal, okay? I don't have statistics. Thus saith Tim, okay. But, but I would say this. I have seen more Christians ruin their testimony, damage the message of the gospel because of their failure in interpersonal relationships than I have for those that have pursued an unbiblical divorce or even those that are struggling with external or internal aspects of lust. And that's not to minimize those other two things, but to say the Bible says so much about how we as Christians are to live in unity and harmony, how we're to resolve our differences, how we're to to work toward reconciliation, how we're to be selfless in our love for one another. And so I think really what we're seeing is the same priority that we see all through the Old Testament, that we are to love others. We're not to hate them in our heart. We're not to, to seek vengeance against them, but rather that we're to have relationships that are marked by unity and harmony. And so it's not like Jesus is introducing something new, but simply reinforcing a priority that we find all through the scriptures that have been written up to that point. Okay, so we're dealing here with conflict. Or Jesus is dealing with conflict and uh, using this as a, as a means of, of teaching about the law. It was on my mind, but I also had another member approach me after the sermon saying, okay, God wants us before we worship, uh, yeah, if something's between me and another person wants us to reconcile, what if I go to that person and they just are not interested in reconciling? Maybe not yet or maybe not ever. Mm-hmm. That also affects how I worship. I mean, I'm sure that I wasn't the only one there the other night, other day when you said, when you were speaking about this thinking, but I've tried. Yep. Absolutely. And, and, and unfortunately, it comes to my mind at that time, and I'm thinking, oh, what? maybe I need to do more. What, what do I do? Yep. I think there's two things that come to my mind in, in, by way of application. The scripture says, as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. And I think implicit in that is it doesn't all depend on you. There's a factor in this equation you cannot control. And so you are a peacemaker. You are someone who is pursuing reconciliation. You are being urgent and humble and merciful, all these things that Jesus has described in terms of beatitude types of characters. And you're longing to see that relationship restored. But that if somebody refuses and rejects those initiatives, you don't have control over how they respond. But the other piece of it that I would say is that we need to have a posture that continues to long for the reconciliation that's there. I'll speak for myself here. Sometimes once I've tried and it didn't work, I want to write them off. I want to say, you know what? They're obviously not spiritual mature enough. They're obviously somebody that's just embedded in their sin. But when someone refuses to ask for forgiveness, we can't forgive them. Because a condition of forgiveness is repentance. We see that in our own relationship with the Lord. But what we need to do is always stand ready to forgive them, eager to reconcile. And so the image that comes to my mind is the father of the prodigal son, who, although he didn't go searching for his son in every bar and brothel that was in the far country, 
he continued to wait and long hoping that maybe today will be the day that that relationship is reconciled. And so as to kind of keep with Jesus's emphasis, even if we can't bring reconciliation, reconciliation to that relationship, we need to keep a soft heart toward that person. Because as soon as we start to harbor bitterness or self-righteousness toward them, then in reality, we're building a wall brick by brick, even if we don't want to admit to it. So what you seem to be saying, if I can put it into my own situation, um, it should hurt a little bit when we're sitting there hearing this and thinking through it. It should hurt, but it also should spur us on to greater reliance on Jesus, greater reliance on the Spirit working through us, and, and the hope that is implicit in trusting God. He can do anything. He can do heal even devastated relationships. Absolutely. And all the while constantly asking, God, show me my heart through this. My heart in the past, things that maybe I want to excuse or minimize or ignore that I actually need to go and confess to that person. Or my heart in the present, where I've started to become kind of hard-hearted or self-righteous toward that person. A humble approach. Mm -hmm. Jesus, if we can continue on this thread just a little bit, Jesus seems to boil down the issue of anger and broken relationships to how it affects our worship of God. I mean, that really is seems to be his approach. Is that a fair statement? I think I would maybe just modify it slightly. The anger and broken relationships are the check engine light that yeah. indicates something's not right with our heart of worship. Because again, so many times we see in the Bible, Jesus says, well, you assume that as long as you're going through these motions, you're offering these sacrifices or, or um, doing those types of things that you're in a good place. He says, if you have anger that you've harbored, if you have broken relationships, it suggests that something is amiss in your relationship with the Lord, that you're not loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Maybe you're harboring a, a, an idol of your heart that justifies you in your thinking or in your relationship with others, that you, you've begun to feel vindictive or bitter, you've externalized or internalized your anger. And in both of those cases, God says, your heart is my priority. And so when these things crop up, you need to deal with those as your first priority because you can give as much money as you want to, you can go to church as often as you want to, you can pray for as long as you want to, but if I don't have your heart, then ultimately it isn't the type of worship that's going to honor me. And so I would say these things are simply warning lights on the dashboard that tell us God's pointing to something that's going on under the surface. Next week, we're going to be talking about lust. Mm -hmm. And uh, you've done what any dutiful preacher would do. You're giving that to somebody else. <laughs> now, uh, Trent Rogers will be uh, uh, preaching next Sunday. Can you give us a little update or uh, uh, forward looking into what some things we can be thinking about as we're dealing with lust, but also anything else here about the, this particular passage? You say, boy, I wish we had more time to discuss this. Yeah. So just related to this passage, I've had so many conversations and even personal reflection that just reminds me, there's not one of us that these truths don't touch. And, and I would suggest that that's Jesus's point on all of these contrasts, that we all ought to come away saying, I'm a murderer. I am an adulterer. I am a person who breaks my word on a regular basis. Not in some, I'm some, you know, worm, you know, woe is me type of a sense, but to to really be aware of just how deceitfully wicked our heart is and how 
broken our lives are as a result that, that makes us dependent upon the grace of God. And so even as we then go into this next week, I think the main thing that I would say is many times when we come to a passage like this, we tend to stereotype that when Jesus says, I tell you, if you even look at a woman lust in your heart, we have a certain image that comes in our mind of who that's intended for. That's probably for a guy who's in a certain age who is going to struggle with that in a particular way, whether that's pornography or, or just his thought life or those types of things. And for certain, it's going to apply in those types of categories. But I'm going to suggest that if we immediately go to, oh, so-and-so needs to probably hear this message, we've already put our focus in the wrong place. But rather that if we really look at the way that we tend to use others for our own benefit, the way that lust commodifies relationship for our own selfish desire, I think it's going to go deeper than we want to admit. It's going to be more convicting than we like to admit. And I think the last thing that I would say then is that when God brings conviction, don't fight that battle alone. Because so many times, especially in an area as sensitive as lust, I think people feel guilty, but they don't want to go forward. They don't want to go share that with an elder. They don't want to tell their, their spouse or their small group. And so they say, well, I feel really guilty. I'm just going to try harder. I'm going to do more from now on. And they continue to fight the battle in isolation, which is exactly where Satan wants you. And so I would just encourage you, we talked about this all throughout the summer as we dealt with the book of Hosea, that repentance needs community. We need to be a place in which it's okay to not be okay. And that we are going to minister the grace of the gospel to one another rather than being shocked that we are all struggling in the process of becoming more like Christ. And Tim, to your point, uh, it is hard to come to uh, ask help, uh, whether it's a young lady coming to an older woman and just saying, hey, I'm struggling in this area of the desires that I have, whatever those desires might be. Men, yeah, certainly often it is sexual, or, or but there are other things that men uh, struggle with as well. But uh, what a blessing it is when somebody does. And you and I have both had that happen uh, recently and far off uh, in the past, but where people have come and said, hey, I want to sit down and just be with you. And to that point, it comes, it keeps coming back to me, things, something that we talk about regularly here on the podcast, we should be talking about regularly just in life. And that is the idea of spirit led discipline. Mm. We, it, it's so basic, but it's so needful. Um, and if I may just, uh, uh, maybe close with this in our adult Bible fellowship the other day, a gentleman brought up, uh, Joel, thank you for doing this, uh, brought up that, uh, he had read somewhere that it's often takes psychologists and sociologists suggest, and this comes from a Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you've ever read Malcolm mm -hmm. Gladwell, but, uh, sociologist, psychologist type of a guy who wrote, uh, one particular book where his study said that it's, it will take in his study, 10,000 hours of diligent preparation and practice, whether you're a musician, an athlete, a mathematician, whatever it is, to master something. Hmm. It's a lot of hours, my friend. But there's something to that, though. It takes time to develop into the godly individual or be developing into the godly individual God desires us to be. Yes. Well, and I would just affirm and, and add on to that, that when we think about spirit-led disciplines, our mind often goes to individual Bible study, individual prayer, individual meditation or silence or reflection. And those are all essential, let me be clear. 
But let us not neglect the communal disciplines as well, where we devote ourselves to the public reading of God's word, where we commit to praying for one another, where we confess our sins to one another, because there's just such immense benefit in living the Christian life in community. The basics are also the deep, deep, deep things of God. Yes. Got to do better and let's keep working on it. Tim, I feel better. I'm not angry anymore. Well, that's good. Hey, again, thanks for your help. And thanks so much for your good work. We've been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell, and we invite you to share your questions and your comments with us each week. You can email those to contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next time. Trent Rogers will be leading us in our study of God's Word in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. Until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.